Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week, we'll be continuing with our read-through of The Hunger Games, looking at chapters 9 and 10. Brittany, could you give us a recap about what happens in these chapters? So it starts with betrayal. Betrayal. From PETA wanting to be coached separately. And Katniss has a discouraging session with Haymitch, trying to find a personality trait for her to focus on for her interviews. Cinna encourages her to be herself in the interviews and act like she's talking to him, which helps. And it goes okay until PETA confesses that he has a crush on Katniss on public television. Mm-hmm. Katniss is furious with him and even pushes him until others explain how the confession actually benefits her by making her seem desirable and making this love story a tragic thing that the capital will be paying attention to throughout mm-hmm. the games and so katniss can't sleep because it's the night before she's dropped into the arena and finds Peta on the rooftop where she apologizes to him and he expresses how he wishes that he could find a way to show the capital they don't own him so that he can die as himself the next morning, they go to the Hunger Games arena. Sita escorts Katniss as far as he can until she's raised into the arena and the 74th Hunger Games begin. Yeah, a lot happens. This is why we've been going two chapters at a time exactly. thus far. I think we'll be picking up the pace after this. But yeah, there's a, it's just jam-packed. <laughs> mm-hmm. So why don't we move into our striking moments? What were some moments that struck you? Or you notice differently for the first time. Yeah, one really brief one was when Katniss and Cinna are on the hovercraft going to the arena. She mentions that they're escorted into a room that has breakfast laid out. Which, for me, it kind of made me rethink of the way I imagined those hovercrafts. Because mm. I always saw them as kind of like a helicopter that has just one compartment. And clearly this is a much larger vehicle if it has separate rooms inside of it and you can serve breakfast inside of it. Like it's closer to an airplane than it is to a helicopter, which is just very different from how I imagined them. You know, I'm guessing there are probably different kinds of hovercrafts, but it just, yeah, it kind of increased the scale of the technology they have available and that Katniss is experiencing. Mm. Yeah, I guess this is first class heading towards death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, I always saw them as much more military than... Luxury? Luxury, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, capital people, if they have to travel around, they want a nice food spread. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, another thing that struck me was, and this is something I've, I've kind of been seeing a lot as we've been reading, but is Katniss and Sina's relationship is never sexualized even though she is in circumstances where she's often naked and where Mm. things like the way the Hunger Games is portrayed in media would elevate those aspects, you know, and just in the same way that women's bodies are objectified and sexualized and girls' bodies in our society, in our media. And I appreciate that Collins is able to have a number of their scenes together be ones that are, I wouldn't even say chaste because the idea of it being sexualized isn't even, doesn't even occur. It's just professional yet friendly somehow. Exactly. I think 
part of that is, yeah, just that professionalism. But I think part of it also is Cinna's consideration and doing everything he can to make Katniss comfortable. I was thinking this particularly in the last scene of these chapters because Cinna kisses her on the forehead. And again, it's not like, my heart was a flutter having such a handsome person <laughs> kiss me, you know? I don't think Katniss's heart would ever be a flutter, I mean, but... Exactly. <laughs> uh, and then that happened, you know, very soon after, as they're waiting for the games to begin, Cinna asks her if she'd like to talk, which I love because it's not what would you like to talk about or what can I do? It's saying specifically, this might help you, but asking, you know, if that's what would help her. Would you Mm. like to talk? And she says no, and then they just sit in silence. And I think that's a a really uh, a great character moment for Cinna in showing how he is so focused on her comfort, on what she's going through, and what he can do to assist in whatever small ways he can. Totally, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And him viewing her as a human makes a difference too. Because maybe some other stylists wouldn't be that way. Mm-hmm. Because one, when you're objectifying someone, you are dehumanizing them in a way because you're objectifying, you're making them into an object. And for capital people who are at the height of their fields, and they have this extreme power over this person, you know, I could see that being abused all the time, as it is in our entertainment industry, Mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, I think him viewing her as a person doesn't only make him treat her better in terms of him being from the capital and her being from the districts, but also, yeah, when it comes to gender dynamics as well. Yeah, and so I think it's interesting that she feels most comfortable and safest with the person with whom she is in a place of vulnerability, Mm -hmm. um, or one that would be considered vulnerable in so many other stories. Yeah. But what about you? What moment struck you? Yeah, something that caught my attention was when she was doing her private session with Effie. Mm-hmm. It said that Katniss had a tendency to duck her head, which I thought was really interesting because I think that we associate with low self-confidence mm. or a learned behavior of subservience, which, yeah, then kind of leads me to believe that, like, her defiance and her her strength in general and particularly in those moments of boldness doesn't really come from confidence. It comes from her personality because also, like we've talked about in some previous episodes, she hears something that Peta is saying and she interprets it as somehow insulting her or mm-hmm. somehow un- undermining her skills or that people were feeling sorry for her. And those things, I think, are signs of not having great self-confidence. I mean, obviously, we... Th- We know that she doesn't see herself as beautiful and I could also see not having very many friends and also just living in the seam and being a part of a group that is looked down upon within the district she lives in, but also nationally in Pan Am Mm. would take effect. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, yeah, not something that I had thought about before because 
Yeah, she is so bold and brazen sometimes. But I think that that's the thing is she also responds to her environment in a way that I didn't always see before. Um, mm. You know, how she is sullen and unfriendly when she's talking to Hamish. That doesn't mean <laughs> that that's just who she is, but yeah. that's how she responds in that relationship. And so, yeah, maybe she has a tendency to hunch when she's at this table you know, preparing for the Hunger Games, being surrounded by all these people who are talking about how to help them survive and, and sell themselves. And yeah, I can see that that being something that affects her in a way that she's probably not going to be hunching over if she's out in the woods or if she's with Gale or, you know, even when she's with Prim and her, fa and her mom, you know, it's going to be a very different kind of environment and she'll react differently. Yeah. I mean, but even when, remember when she first met Gail, it took her a really long time mm. to even be able to really talk with him about anything other than just hunting and splitting their spoils and things like that. Yeah. Another thing about Katniss that I was like, oh, <laughs> I like, I know that I relate to Katniss in certain ways, but then this time I was like, that's very interesting. It's after Peta's confession, and then she's angry, right? And she says that you turned me into a fool, and, you know, he made me look weak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just kind of struck me in a different way, because I didn't really think about relating to those feelings previously, but I think that I do. I mean, Chris, you remember how long it took me to ask you to be my boyfriend. I do. <laughs> like an hour or something. Yeah, a good amount of time. Yeah. And I refused to do it for you. <laughs> I know. That's why I was like, ugh, I think he knows, but he's just waiting. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I think similarly as Katniss, obviously not from the same sources, but like, I just learned as a kid to shut down my emotions emotions were a place of vulnerability and potential ammunition that you give to somebody else to um, attack you with and I think probably Katniss learned too from watching her mom and what happened to her after her dad died not that that is just purely emotions like I'm sure that there was brain chemistry and things going on then but mm -hmm. not that a 11 year old kid would really understand that and so I, th I think she just learned that like emotions make you vulnerable emotions can make you weak when you need to be strong yeah looking at her mother exactly overcome with emotions yeah and you know i i had a some similar experiences growing up where you know most of the first 12 years of my life i didn't really have a emotional support and so yeah it was just easier to to shut them down and I think she probably was was similar mm -hmm. so I was like oh oh Katniss I get you I wouldn't shove sh someone into an urn so that they <laughs> break it and you know have their hands cut but I, I understand that feelings are difficult and embarrassing for someone who grew up suppressing them mm -hmm. yeah and I don't connect with any of these aspects of Katniss's <laughs> personality <laughs> I know Chris <laughs> I am well aware another thing I thought that was interesting was with Caesar Flickerman changing his hair color each year 
And that was just making me think he has to keep up with the entertainment aspect as well. Mm -hmm. And like the novelty, just like the Hunger Games do so that people don't get bored. So there's so many resources going into the games themselves, but also, yeah, there just must be so many resources going into the fast fashion um, of those like Caesar and Effie. Mm -hmm. But why don't we move into our from another point of view? What do you have? Yeah, so it probably won't surprise anyone to know that I was thinking a lot about what Peter was going through this chapter. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah, with, with him confessing uh, a crush on Katniss in front of the entire world or the entire society, you know, that, that, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, this is already, I think, a nerve-wracking experience. Even Katniss feels nervous, and she isn't planning on doing something as intense as that. You know, this is something that Peta has clearly been planning in that he asks Hamish to be coached separately, um, probably because he also knows that Katniss would not allow for that to go ha- to happen. <laughs> or as they said, like, you wouldn't have been able to pretend like it was an authentic reaction. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm as someone who, who can very much be nervous at those kinds of big events and, and big confessions and things like that, I can imagine that that was a big deal for him. You know, we at this point in the book, we don't know a ton about what's going on with PETA. And I don't want to spoil things too much, but I definitely, you know, am thinking about how truthful those feelings are for him and how much he is performing. And it just made it so that one one line in particular stood out to me. And, you know, we, we've talked in our regular format episodes a lot about his speech about not wanting to become someone that he's not, not wanting to be a pawn in the games. Mm-hmm. But one thing that kind of really stuck out to me this reading was when Katniss says, you know, who cares? Peta says angrily, what else am I allowed to care about? And, you know, I think that, that very much is related to their entire situation, but I also wonder how much of that is related to her reaction to his confession. Like, he's not even allowed to care about her. Because mm. he's angry with her in that moment. And I wonder how, yeah, if he's responding to that and how much that can cause frustration and pain at the one person who he did feel like he had, you know, whether it's romantic or not, you know, they were growing a friendliness and, and affection for one another. And that even that isn't allowed, you know, as they're going to be forced to be put against one another in the games the next day. So yeah, I, I think it's a uh, a really hard time for PETA, and I can understand why he gets frustrated, which he doesn't get frustrated that much, I think, through what we've seen of him thus far, especially. And so to push him that far, I can I can see that pain in a way that, I, you know, from this exercise of really trying to think about what he's going through and, and what he's saying from his perspective, rather than just what it's bringing to Katniss's experiences and, and the plot as a whole. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and something I've been noticing in the past few chapters is so much of the kind of awkwardness surrounding Katniss and Peter's interactions are she's like why is he acting friendly we're not in front of other people and Mm -hmm. things she's always suspicious of him and he's just like does she hate me exactly like that's that's basically all the awkwardness from him is like am i allowed to talk to her yeah probably such a sad boy i know poor baby (laughs) and and i think 
he at first was awkward because, you know, he does have a little crush on her. But then they started feeling like it was genuine, some of the conversations and Mm. the things they were laughing about. And then she's like, let's not pretend when we're not in front of people. And... Oh, Peter. And she says, how dare you, and pushes him and injures yeah. him, you know, when he does do this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and I could imagine that he's like, well, I'll probably would never get a chance to tell her otherwise, because the likelihood we'll see each other in the games or won't be killed the first day or whatever is maybe not that high. Mm-hmm. And so I could imagine him having a conversation with Hamish in his session about, would this be useful? Is there anything beneficial here that could actually help? So it's it's confessing, but it's also being strategic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but what other perspective were you looking through? So I was thinking a lot about Caesar Flickerman. Mm-hmm. And how he, as Katniss phrased it, tries to help you out. Mm. during the interviews and was just imagining him thinking about in a very small way I'm gonna try to help these kids feel supported or less anxious and giving the tributes tad bit more of an equal playing field than they would have if he didn't help them out if they made a bad joke and he didn't (laughs) try to help them save it if they didn't have much to say and he didn't try to pull things out to make it more interesting. So yeah, I was I was just make I was just thinking about like does that make him feel like he has to stay in the job that he's doing even though it has to be emotionally taxing to do so because he has had more contact than anyone or almost anyone in the nation with the tributes. Mm. Because he's been doing this for 40 years, which I did the math, and that's at least a minimum of 984 kids that he's interviewed. Wow. Yeah, which is just so many Mm. when only 40 of those kids have survived. And the rest, he watched die a violent death before commentating on it. Yeah. And he is one of the few people who actually had that personal interaction with all of them. So, yeah, I could imagine that it would be taxing. And so, yeah, I was just kind of thinking about how he deals with that and is one of the ways he deals with that, trying to help them out in their interview. Because even though it's a super small way, it's something they can be slightly less stressed about and it's something that could maybe help them a little bit even if it's in just a really small way yeah and and it's having someone on your side you know even for a little bit but especially during one of the most public and stressful elements you know leading up to the games yeah but i mean like it's still super problematic yes (laughs) so it's not doing a public good it's just in the system that is setting these kids up for an entertaining death, this is a small personal way to maybe have a slightly positive effect on someone. I, I don't know. It, it's complicated, but um, thinking about it from how he manages that, 
Yeah, I was thinking something similar and made me it made me kind of question all of the people who are helping Katniss and Peeta. Not only how do they see themselves like as how giving or how helpful they're trying to be, but then yeah, and this larger question of like, are they actually helping? Mm-hmm. Because sure they're helping maybe increase a little bit of survivability, but they're also helping this production to continue. And it's hard, yeah. So, you know, Cinna and Effie and Hamish, all of them, I think, are have other similar kinds of elements to that, and they have much more direct relationships with her. But Caesar, I think, is this very interesting person because we don't see a lot of him, but Katniss does seem to see him as likable, which and, and she tries to put herself in, in his shoes in some small ways, too. It did make me think, at times, how much does he work with the mentors in prepping questions Mm. um, because he was so able to direct both of them into places where they could shine a little bit Mm. or a lot for Peter's case. Totally. That's a question that I've been wondering. After their different prep sessions, do the mentors give him a couple bullet points of like, this is what they're prepared for if you want to steer conversations this way or something? Exactly. Um, which I think makes sense, but I think... I mean, what, what's the point otherwise mm-hmm. of having the prep? Yeah. But I think at the same time, Caesar is also just a good interviewer. Mm. And he's probably very good at reading his interviewee and the audience and and knowing what's going to work, where he's able to, to pull out some of those things all on his own. You know, his repartee with Peta is just charming, and the two of them play off one another. And it's not like, even if Hamish gave him some notes, it wouldn't have been able to bring them there unless they both had that skill. It couldn't have worked with Katniss. No. (laughs) It really could not have, no. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because I read the first book before seeing the movie, but once you see Stanley Tucci be Flickerman, it's like you can't not see it. But it was kind of interesting this read there. I was like trying to view him with the name Caesar as Latinx. Like I know mm. it's usually Cesar, right? So it's spelled a little differently. Yeah. But it was kind of an interesting thing to think about, maybe culturally a little bit, if this isn't a uh, stereotype, but just like being a little warmer and more welcoming. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, we have so little knowledge of how cultures exist or coexist or mm-hmm. have intermingled. We, we clearly know that an infatuation with ancient Rome is central to culture in the capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was definitely thinking about Caesar's name coming from there. And, and, totally, and yeah. also how audacious it would be to be named Caesar <laughs> with everyone has that knowledge. But, yeah, yeah that's, that's an interesting always... exercise. Yeah, that's what I'd always thought before. I was like, oh, this could be an interesting read. Yeah. Hmm. Well, let's move into our touch points. What do you have today, Mr. History Professor Teacher Boy? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one thing that stood out for sure was how the arenas become historic sites. Totally, yeah. And these kind of tourist sites afterwards, which 
here in California very much ties into the missions. Oh, yeah. Gross. Yeah. So for those who are unfamiliar with this history, uh, when the Spanish first started settling in and trying to colonize what we now call California, what they called Alta California, they were building these missions. They built 21 throughout Alta California, and each one basically operated in part as a church, but also as a military stronghold, and in particular as a center for labor exploitation of the indigenous community in the area. And a center to try to educate out indigenous people's cultures and religion and all of that, too. Exactly. Although I wouldn't necessarily put it as educate out as... Uh, No, not, not as like through education, but through... Any means necessary, really. Yeah, through enslavement yeah. and... Torture at times and, yeah. and all these other kinds of It's elements. like a re-education camp much yeah. more so than yeah, real education. Not real education. <laughs> That's not what was happening. Yeah. And so the missions have had a long history of, in the early 1900s, starting to be kind of held up as California, now an American territory but as California's historical core. You know, they became tourist sites and and, and heritage sites. Um, There's a lot of really great research done by people like Phoebe S.K. Young and William Deverell about how this process basically tried to tie American concepts of progress and modernity to the Spanish who came to civilize the, the region and all of it basically at best. Was a lie? I mean, yes, always a little lie. But I'm looking for... <laughs> I was going to say at best is the lie. <laughs> at best appropriated um, and at worst silenced or, or celebrated the silencing of indigenous or Mexican histories, you know, and so it becomes very racialized, all these kinds of elements. And, and to this day, the missions are... Many of them still operate as churches, but they all are tourist sites. Mm-hmm. And, people... and kids have to do a project, right, about mm-hmm. a mission and maybe make a model. Yeah, in, I did. In, yeah, in elementary school. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but when we were in elementary school or middle school. Yeah, and, and I mean, it, it really is something that is, I think, a big important part of the public history of California and, and debates over what that should look like. Because over the last several years... Father Sarah, who who's basically the head of the creation of these missions, had been canonized. He had been made into yeah. a saint. But then over the last few years in the United States, as discourse about what monuments we should have in our country, you know, have been growing, and in particular looking at things like Confederate monuments, in mm-hmm. California there have been calls to take down monuments to people like Father Sarah. Which so, I'm all for. Absolutely. Yeah, so thinking about the arenas now as as historic sites, it's just similar where it's feeling a kind of connection to a place that you aren't necessarily connected to mm-hmm. or you're connected to in ways that are hierarchical and oppressive rather than a kind of uplifting history, I think is is a really important thing because, yeah, people in the capital will go there for tourism and things like that, but someone from the districts isn't going to have that kind of relationship, just as an indigenous person going to a mission will likely have a very different perspective than yeah. other Americans. So, yeah, it's, it's I think, 
very, very important kind of conversations that are happening in those public histories right now that uh, just that one line very much sparked in me <laughs> this kind of intense connection. Totally. I mean, that, that's a great point that I wouldn't have thought of, but is very applicable, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, it's people going because of a narrative that was constructed that they're interested in at the expense of the suffering of the people that were actually involved, the people it actually affected, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a really good comparison. I had one other smaller touch point, which is thinking about the immense amount of resources and public space that are used for these events. As someone who lives in Pasadena and just experienced New Year's in Pasadena again. (laughs) Because, of course, we have the Rose Parade and the Rose Bowl on New Year's every year. And for basically the full month before that, we start seeing all of these stands being set up around the city. And yeah, just so many resources being put there, so much public space being set aside for this event that only happens one day. And that the city itself really builds itself around in many ways. And it makes me think about how the architecture of the Civic Center and and these other places that are being used for the Hunger Games have to be maintained or developed in ways that will be most beneficial to this event Mm -hmm. rather than how it's used the rest of the year. We have a train that goes underground for about a mile because it needs to go underneath Colorado Boulevard where the parade goes through. You know, we have uh, the the Colorado Boulevard itself was expanded by 15 feet on either side so that all these buildings had to basically rebuild their facades of the buildings. So like the built space of this area of our city is year round affected by this, but also especially affected at this time period. And yeah, just all of these resources and things are so devoted to this one event that becomes so central to the construction and the identity of the city and and of the society. Totally. And you can bet that the Capitol would have their opening ceremonies, even with Omicron. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Just as we did. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But what about you? What touch points did you have? So what I was thinking about is when Katniss is thinking about the interviews, And she says, every television set is turned on. Every citizen in Penham is tuned in. There will be no blackouts tonight. Mm -hmm. And just thinking about how the districts could have the resources to not have any blackouts. But I'm assuming that, you know, the capital is purposefully doing certain things to cut off electricity, to funnel more things and resources to themselves at the expense of the districts. And it was just really reminding me of what's gone on in Myanmar Mm. since the coup that happened there with blackouts, with internet just being shut off every night, and access to social media being completely turned off until the military coup regime wants to post something to their Facebook page, then suddenly you can access it again, you know? And so I was just thinking about that and how, again, we've mentioned this before in some of our regular podcast episodes, how first it started in Thailand 
And then during protest of this coup in Myanmar, the three-finger salute from the Hunger Games has been used as this sign of protest and, and solidarity with other protesters. So yeah, it was just a regime that has power over the resources, can turn it on and off at will. And will do so to benefit their own goals. Exactly. And make it so that others are not able to organize. If some productivity is cut off, it doesn't matter because it's worth it to oppress the people. Yeah, that's a really good connection, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yes. And the, the last one I was kind of thinking about is feminism and literature in kind of a meta way, actually, because there's the sentence, which I think is really powerful, after getting angry at Peta and everything, talking with Cinna and Portia and Hamish and Effie, and they're convincing her that, like, no, this was a good idea. If Peta didn't do what he did, there wasn't much of substance that people would remember about you from your interview. So she had this thought, which was, I was made beautiful by Sinna's hands, desirable by Peta's confession, tragic by circumstance. Mm-hmm. And I just think, isn't that the perfect line to categorize so many women and girls in literature throughout mm. history? It's so common. It's like, they're made beautiful in this way, or desirable, or it's circumstances that make them interesting, or things like that. And... I think it's really interesting because even though she says PETA has made me an object of love, well, that's an objectifying thing, right? I'm an object of love, which again is so common for female characters to be in literature. I mean, not just literature, but... All forms of media. Exactly. And so it's, it's picking up on her being not exactly a tool, but it's picking up on those elements of like other people are making me this, which I think is true of so much fiction. But in the actual books, I think it defies that, which I I appreciate. Absolutely, because we don't love Katniss for what she's wearing or for Peta's love for her. Mm -hmm. We love her for her defiance and for her biting wit and for you know her compassion yeah exactly for her intelligence and strategic mind yeah exactly so i just i thought it was a really interesting line that just brings out what's wrong with so many other books (laughs) yeah i mean it's putting a line in the sand of being like come at me (laughs) other fiction authors (laughs) (laughs) right i don't know if she was doing that but now she's doing that to me (laughs) that's great an actual semi nice touch point (laughs) (laughs) but why don't we move into our wonderments what are you wondering about yeah so we kind of have touched on this before but it was really on my mind this week uh which is the standards of beauty Mm. that are in panem and I think that before this read-through, I always kind of took Katniss's perspective as more widespread of her being like the inhumanity of the capital fashions, that they dye their skin, that they have these tattoos, that they, you know, have these ridiculous hairstyles, that for her, it's it just makes her make jokes and, and, and it's not something that she sees as beautiful. And 
I'm wondering what it's like for those who are less discerning than Katniss in the districts. Mm. And how watching the Hunger Games, which they have to every year, and seeing these people who are made up in ways that are just beyond what they could possibly imagine for themselves. You know, the the fashion that they have, the makeup that they have, the pampering, the time and energy put into it, uh, of the style, you know, all of these elements, it makes it to even a greater degree than in our society, though there are certainly similarities, and you could do a touch point on this too, <laughs> but of the unreachable standards of beauty that are being put forward. Totally, yeah. And when those unreachable standards of beauty are beyond even just a jawline or a body type or, or anything like that, but goes into, I can't turn my skin blue, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I can't do these things that are through advanced technologies and resources and things like that. I just wonder if that would make people have, yeah, insecurities and desires to be something that they they can't be, you know, to, to have a body that looks a way that is just unreachable, which, of course, people experience in our society. And yeah, I'm just curious what that would be like for someone who, unlike Katniss, does care and is affected in intense ways, you know, through that socialization. Hmm, Yeah. What about you? What are you wondering? I was thinking about when Hamish and Katis were trying to figure out an angle for her, right? And her thinking, yeah, I've watched the tribute interviews all of my life. And so I, I know there's truth to what he's saying about me needing to have some personality angle to, mm-hmm. to focus on. And that just kind of was making me wonder if kids watching the games every year in the districts kind of mentally log tips that might help them if they're ever reaped Mm. because if i was living in penham i would totally have a notebook if if i had the ability to have a notebook um of strategies if you know i wasn't planning to kill myself in protest or something like Mm. that but I would definitely log things I had seen, whether it's in the games or during the interviews. Yeah, just kind of wondering how much the kids kind of study that. I could imagine definitely would be the case in the career districts. But um, yeah, I kind of wonder about that from districts where no kid wants to go. Yeah. And then what that's like when it is, you know, a friend of a friend, the person that you've seen around and Mm -hmm. you're taking notes on how you would survive in their place, you know, just the morbidity that that kind of brings along with it. Totally. Mm. Another thing I was wondering about is when Canis is talking with Cinna and he's saying, just be yourself and answer as honestly as possible. And she's like, even if what I think is horrible. And he responds, especially if what you think is horrible. And I'm just really wondering about what he was thinking there and what his motivation was. What he wanted her to say. Exactly. Is he just hoping that she'll be defiant in a way? She will show her disgust with the Capitol. She will hold them accountable publicly before she dies. Yeah. Is that what his hope was for her? that maybe year after year, if enough people can do that, maybe eventually something will be different, you know? Mm. I don't know. 
Yeah, definitely, yeah. What what could that interview have been if that's the direction it went into? Right? Because clearly Katniss has a lot of awful things to say about the Capitol and about (laughs) the Hunger Games. Yes. So for her to have said those out loud, I think, would have been a, a very intense reaction from the Capitol. Yeah, it would have. I mean, she definitely wouldn't have gotten sponsors. No. <laughs> but <laughs> PETA might have had to change his strategy mid-conversation. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I've hated her my whole life. I'm just happy I can go into this arena and kill her now. Betrayal. <laughs> Betrayal. Well, why don't we go into our intentions before we close out this episode? What is something that you're taking from these chapters to kind of internalize or apply to your life? I have one that I, I'm wondering if it might not be anti a lot of the messages from the Hunger Games. <laughs> um, okay. Because one thing that, that I think is on my mind, especially as, you know, I have not had many in-person events or, or meetings or anything like that in years now, but seeing how Katniss and PETA, I think, to an extent, how they become more kind of comfortable in themselves when they are in those clothes that make them feel good and confident and powerful. Yeah. Mm. It it makes me feel like I I need to put more energy into that, into Mm. what I wear. And, you know, there's the possibility that the classes I teach will go back to being in person and, you know, not just throwing on whatever button up I have that's not very wrinkly, but instead kind of <laughs> putting a little bit more time and thought into that to try to make it so that, yeah, I feel confident or positive about the way I might be perceived instead of kind of not caring. And I think that one of the things that the books are about is how, as a society, we over focus on the way that people look and the way that those looks are constructed and produced and lead to objectification, all these other kinds of things. And so like, I don't want to lean into that, you mm-hmm. know, but I think that seeing how Sina's designs and Porsche's designs are so affecting, there's just something, I think a, a positive lesson I'm, I'm trying to take from that too. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's definitely the messages like capitalism, exploitation. Boo. Yeah. But, and I know in, like, the very end of the trilogy, in, like, the acknowledgement section, she mentions, like, her mom taught her about sci-fi and fashion. So uh, I, I'm sure that there was some positive thing she learned there that yeah. she was applying to this. But, yeah, that there, there is something that's showing there can be power here or that it can affect how a person feels. Or even the lack of that when Katniss gets to wear something a little more simple and it feels a little more like herself, you know, what makes you feel like yourself? Because like even my style in a lot of ways cut across these gender expectations and things and like I find that fits me well, but it also I think there can be something slightly subversive in that as well. Yeah. Um, So... I think that there can be positive things, but, you know, it has to be done in certain ways to make it least, you know, harmful to the environment or people who are working in sweatshops to produce it, which obviously most of our clothes comes from thrifting or from fair trade companies. So 
I am perfectly happy, Chris, to help you out with your oh, new I'm endeavor. Oh, I'm sure you are. <laughs> What's your intention? So my intention is kind of going off of a little bit what you were talking about with physical appearance mm. and, and the beauty standards. And, you know, I just love the line, wrinkles aren't desirable, a round belly isn't a sign of success, of her just contrasting so much what people in her district see as success see as what they would covet versus yeah. the capital and looking at a totally different property um in one queer eye episode i remember jonathan vaness saying aging is a privilege which mm. i really appreciated particularly when it comes to looks obviously you know there can be complications with aging in a society that doesn't support that process but um yeah so, yeah, I just, I think I want to try to make sure to internalize those ideas more because even though aging isn't something that I'm very concerned with now, you know, even if I find like, oh, look, a new smile line or a new few white hairs or something like that, I'm not super concerned with that currently, but like, maybe that'll become more difficult of a perspective to maintain in 10 years from now. So trying to like intentionally put in the work of viewing myself and also others, you know, that way now is, is probably a good idea. Yeah, that's really nice. Okay, well, I think that will wrap up this week's discussion. What's going to happen next time on The Hunger Games? Next time we are picking up the pace and we're going to do three chapters. So that is going to be 11, 12, and 13 where we see Katniss showing us the meaning of haste. Yes, I know that is coming from a line from Gandalf, but we love Lord of the Rings too. <laughs> exactly. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. You can find links to our website and our social media in the episode description, or you can join us at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines if you want to become a supporter of the podcast, getting you access to all sorts of extra content, including some really great book club discussions and other activities that we're doing as we read through The Hunger Games. Yeah, we've already had great ideas and insights from some of our patrons. Yeah, so we'd love to have you join us there. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.